When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal partner, your other co-host, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. It's the end of the year. We're going to be doing our year in review episode. We've got a nice anniversarial and end-of-year tone here. We've dressed up for the occasion. I've got my finest tuxedo t-shirt. I'm wearing the socks with the fewest holes in them. Walker's bothered to put on pants, which is a rare occasion. It is. We did a big hype beast thing before we started. We, like, named off all our Gucci wear. It was fantastic. Yeah, Gucci wear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this week. We're going to be talking about board games this week, just to mix things up. We're going to talk about games we played last week, and then we're going to launch right into our year in review, which is going to be a star-studded extravaganza. It's going to be a full gala event. It's amazing the guests we have lined up. I lined up a very, very significant guest walker. I lined up a Michael Walker of Kingston, Ontario. So Kingston... You got some from Kingston? I got I, from Kingston as well. Oh, yeah, who'd you get? This Mark Bigney guy. He's, oh, he sounds like a douchebag. He really is. He's so, a, what did you play last week, Walker? This last week, I got to play Space Hulk. I felt kind of bad because, you know, you said, you know, did you teach anyone Space Hulk when we talked about? So then I actually taught four people Space Hulk. We had two games going at the same time. It was good times were had by all, easy game to teach, and I love Space Hulk. So. I noticed you busted out this, the second edition. Yeah. The old fire hydrants. Yeah, we went, we went old school and, and the new stuff. It was, it was fantastic. Here's a question. Did you set up Suicide Mission from memory? Not this time. Okay, because I, I, I remember the first time we played Space Hulk together, you started setting up Suicide Mission from memory, and it blew my mind. <laughs> it was very impressive. You got a couple details wrong. We had to look them up, but it was... That was an impressive feat of gaming knowledge. Yeah, suicide Mission was played yet another, you know, 15 times that night. But it was, it's a great mission. Oh, you got to play Suicide Mission. Yeah. It is a travesty that the new missions that have been introduced in the 4th and 5th editions, some of them precede Suicide Mission. It is completely mind-boggling that they would ever change that. I don't understand. It was kind of what intro we did. We played, the one that we played on the old school map, we played with directly old school rules. Right. And then the one we played on the 3rd edition map, we played on with 3rd edition rules. And they did sort of go back, but there were subtle differences, and it was interesting mm-hmm. to see how the different games played out using the different rules. Great. Do you have a do you have a settled opinion now on on which rule set you prefer? Oh, I definitely the newest one is definitely by far the best. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I get to play Senji. Senji is one of my all time favorite games. Actually, it's it's in my top twenty. I didn't get to play it hardly at all back in other places that I've lived, but uh, here locally, Senji is is more appreciated, which is good. It was put up by uh, Bruno Catalan and Serge Lazé uh, ten years ago now. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Triumph and Tragedy, and one of the reasons why I love Triumph and Tragedy is because it's one of those very playable games that combines economic elements, warfare elements, and diplomatic elements. 
And that is one of the things that Senji does, too. They're very, very, very different kinds of games. Senji is not a war game. It's it's more like a dudes-on-a-map game, kind of, sort of. But it all is tied together with this absolutely brilliant diplomacy element that is so incredibly clever, that is weaved through every other element of the game. I, I think Senji is a brilliant design that's so clever and so playable and so enjoyable. It's uh, Ideally, you want uh, five-ish players. Four is tolerable, six is tolerable, but five is kind of my preferred number for a variety of reasons. And introduced it to some new players. They seemed a little... Uh, they didn't seem to, 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 to quite appreciate it as much as they ought to, but what else is new? I, I always have a great time playing Senji. It's a game where you get to trade relatives for weapons. I mean, how, how could you say no to a game where you get to trade your grandpa for guns? Exactly. And then your your grandpa that you traded to somebody then shows up at somebody else's house unexpectedly because the person you traded your grandpa to traded them to somebody else. Or you say, or your son. You say, son, we're going on a little vacation. You know, get your things packed up. You're going to go visit your cousin. But dad, you said we don't get it. Just pack up your things. You're, you're going to go on a vacation. It's, it's fantastic. And then the cousin hawks him for some blow. <laughs> and it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And then you show up somebody else somewhere else with your armies. And then they march your son out. And you're like, what are you doing here, son? And the son says, I don't know, man. I go where I'm told. And it's, it's, it's all set. Anyway, I think Senji's a fabulous game. I have a great time every time I play it. It's a, it the, the game is a little bit fragile if people don't internalize how much uh, how, how to get points because it is it is you know fundamentally a cutthroat game about amassing points by any means necessary. And if people play it a little bit too much like a traditional dudes on a map game, things can sometimes uh, get a little bit rickety. But other than that, I I think Senji's marvelous. I can't remember you you've only played Senji a couple times as I recall. About six times now. Oh really? Yeah, no, oh. I, I played it a lot before. And. And no, I love I love Senji. I love the fact that you can sort of set up other people, like you trade you you trade with someone that is doing well, but you're not close to. In in maybe they think that nothing can go wrong with that, and then you you know immediately turn around and trade those cards to the person that they are fighting with to help them out that part of the game, and then they suddenly you know don't understand where these cards came from, and then they look over at you, and you have this innocent smirk on your face. Oops. Just, just a pro tip, by the way, uh, to people. Uh, someone we were playing, it was someone I was playing with this this last week made this error uh, a couple of times. Don't be really open about your willingness to trade away family members that you got from somebody else, and then ask for someone's family members in exchange because you know for a fact that they're a snake and willing to willing to let them go traveling. We don't often offer strategy tips here at uh, Swag, but I this is just a, a little a little word to the wise, a little heads up. Yeah, exactly. All right, I got Terraforming Mars to the table. We've already we talked about it multiple times. The only reason I'm going to bring it up this time is that there's so many expansions now, and I like the fact that when we introduced a brand new player, and you can just ignore some of these expansions, and they can just you know concentrate on the core game and still do very well. This new person actually won the game. You know, they not that they completely ignored the things, but we just ba- uh, taught taught her the base rules, and she worked along with the cards. And then we introduced rules as you went. This is how you build on the map, and this is how you send colonies out, and this is what you do with Venus. And you know, and we got through the game. It was a five-player game, and we got through it very quickly with all of the expansions. Got to try Dinosaur Island. I had not tried it in its previous printing. Now Dinosaur Island has come out. You can see Walker's fabulous unboxing video on our Facebook page. And so this is with uh, another round of expansions and some Kickstarter exclusives. Before we get into the game, though, I'd like to issue a couple of minor complaints about how the game has been fulfilled, because I think it's worth talking about this in the context of, of Dinosaur Island. 
for one thing, some of the minis are bizarre. The, the, the overall, the component quality of the game is is beautiful. Dinosaur Island is, is a pretty impressive production. However, there's some minor problems, and then there are some serious problems. For example, uh, there's the infamous uh, Dunkelostius mini, which doesn't really look like much of anything. It was changed from the the you know the mock-up they had for the Kickstarter, whatever. I'm not going to hold people to mock-up. That's that's sort of the minor stuff. And then there's the more serious stuff, like stretch goals that they just kind of sort of abandoned and didn't tell anyone about. Uh, they were they promised a new board that could accommodate the, the fifth-player expansion. And then when the game showed up, sans the new board, people asked, hey, where's the new board? And then representatives of Pandasaurus Games would show up and say, oh, well, it turns out that we couldn't find a board that would fit into the box, so we just replaced it with a card. It works fine. You should really let people know in advance if you're going to be pulling stuff like that. Generally speaking, backers are going to be very, very forgiving. And I can at least guarantee you that however forgiving they're apt to be, if they com- if you communicate in advance, they're going to be much more forgiving than if you don't communicate to them at all and just wait for people to complain. Because they're going to notice. I don't care how many stretch goals you have. Whether it's 5 or 50, people are going to notice if you just decided to skip a stretch goal. At least Martin Wallace, back during the Study of Emerald debacle, when it turns out that including a poster, which he included as a stretch goal, would be fabulously expensive, he at least told people, oh, by the way, guys, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. And you know, some people complained and some people didn't. And we can have a discussion about the permissibility of that behavior. That's a separate issue. But don't just skip out on a stretch goal because it's too hard and not say anything. Anyway... So the actual game itself, I think actually the, the issues surrounding the production of Dinosaur Island are marginally more interesting than the actual game itself. Without the theme, Dinosaur Island would be a, a, a big fat nothing. The theme is great. The theming isn't super. I mean, basically, it's just uh, an, an efficiency race where you're fulfilling recipes, but it's just the recipes that come out of this aren't multicolored cubes. They're instead dinosaurs, which just makes things better. Yeah, I was just, you, I like the experience of Dinosaur Island and the actual playing of Dinosaur Island. Just the thought of having a dinosaur park and having rides and and dinosaurs, you know, breaking through security and eating your guests is is a fantastic thought. It is. I'm not a huge fan of the limited player interaction. I'm not a huge fan of how much you can get boned based on the visitor draw. It's actually can be very consequential in a number of ways. If you you know the, if if you get hammered in the wrong round, it can be very very problematic. I'm also really not a fan of some of the design decisions. Like we saw some truly wonky card effects. Uh, I'll just call it the worst one because it's so egregiously terrible. Dinosaur Island is a game where it's advantageous to go first. You never want to go second or third. It is always best to have first crack at what's available. And there are these plot twist cards that alter the rules of the game, and you're supposed to draw two, and that alters the global effects. One of them is that just says, don't alter the turn order for the rest of the game. So if you end up last in player order, you're going to get your couple extra bucks at the start of the game, and nothing else and just the entirety of the game you will be last and nothing will change that it is so terrible walker that you took out a you you exercised a very subtle sort of game owner prerogative in order to deal with this issue why don't you tell the, the listeners what you did well i was just gonna i was gonna post up the picture but i i removed the card from the game and i made it so it could not be returned to the game by dissecting it in two <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh walker after we played with that we we, we set up the game We saw that plot twist, and we said, this is dumb, let's get rid of it. And we got rid of it, and we replaced it with something else that was not particularly interesting, but at least it wasn't stupid. And then the next time I see Walker on the table there... Yeah, it's because we had played it again, and the plot twist came up again. Really? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Drew, and I said, no, that's done, and I don't want it to come up ever again. Yeah, so it's been destroyed. It can't hurt anyone else anymore. That's right. 
The world is safe from the from this dumb dumb decision. Anyway, and it makes me, and and honestly, as a result, my opinion of Dinosaur Island as a design has been overall negatively impacted because now I always wonder. Okay, this effect looks fine. This ride, this attraction, this employee, this whatever, this resource looks fine. But this is from the same people who included that stupid turn order card. So maybe it's terrible and degenerate because obviously they are willing to think that this was an okay idea. Anyway, I'm razzing on Dinosaur Island more than it deserves. It's a perfectly pleasant little nothing. Nothing particularly interesting, nothing particularly engaging, other than the theme and the pretty components that are pretty are very pretty. So take that for what it's worth. That's Dinosaur Island by Pandasaurus Games. I tried to get a bunch of 2018 games in, in lieu of this upcoming episode, so I played Cryptid. If you ever played a game called Tobago, this is sort of Tobago light. It just mostly centers on the clues or and or, you know, figuring out where people are. So it's just a series of questions and answers and a set map and, and a puzzle. You know, everyone has a certain number and you start eliminating places where the Yeti or Bigfoot or whatever, you know, you pretend you're trying to find is. And I think it's a fantastic game. You know, it's a great intro beginner game and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you really like those induction games. I do. I've never really enjoyed them. I think it just gives me negative flashbacks to some of those aptitude tests that you have to take, you know, if you're considering applying to various kinds of grad school. I just, no, I just love it. If it's, You know, it's one of those things. It's just much like uh, incognito. It's like one of these, you know, in-your-head things where if it's not A, B, or C, and this other clue, it could be C or D, and you just sort of like cross-reference that and see the path. And Julie and will wear the neither the blue sweater nor the orange sweater. Exactly. And enjoys tobogganing, but not on days that are adjacent to Wednesday. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And that is cryptid. So we played a game called Mega Civilization. We did. I don't really have anything to say about it. No, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. It happened. It ha- yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a thing. There's only nine players, so it wasn't that eventful. Well, yeah, I mean, we had people hanging around. There were, there were seven other people just chilling out, and they said that they had a couple uh, minutes to burn, and so we just, you know, whipped it out, and you know, not much to say. Nope. Well, I guess we should say something, I suppose. So I'm a big fan of the Civilization games. I've talked about it before, and these are the Francis Tresham Civilization games. Very much in a different mold from Sid Meier. So now there's been civilization, there's been advanced civilization, and now there's mega civilization. And honestly, the differences between Civ and advanced Civ in terms of rules are subtle, but the effect on the play experience are considerable. Similarly, the the rules differences between advanced civilization and mega civilization are relatively subtle, but the difference in play experience is once again quite considerable. And I'm not a huge fan of advanced civilization. I don't really like the changes that it did. The changes from advanced to mega, I'm overall in favor of. I think that they were solid, solid improvements. The geography has been improved. The bookkeeping has been minimized. You know, you look at games of advanced civilization, you say, oh, I won 3,456 to 3,420. Uh, and the other player had 3,321. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. I, 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 as I've said before, I'm kind of done with paperwork for now. I'm, I, I'm going to try to get back into things like Kingdom Death Monster and Gloomhaven and other things. But I certainly don't want to do any accounting. 
And Megasive doesn't require that kind of accounting. They, in fact, have a number of lovely little helpful components to help you minimize what little math there is. The AST has been smoothed out. So anyway, for, for any, any, any Civ nerds that really want to get into the weeds, there's a lot of really interesting, subtle differences that Mega Civilization had. Wrangling people together was a little bit easier than I thought. People were leery of the game because, you know, we hear things about how it's, it's, it goes up to 18 players. We played with nine, as Walker said. And the rules explanation was very simple. And, and people were, like, waiting for the shoe to drop. I was going through the phases. This is how this works, and this is how this works. And I'm like, wait, that, that, that's it? Because they were expecting it to be some sort of incredible monster. But the rules for Civ have always been very, very accessible. I had a blast. I, it's a little early to tell, but I do think that Mega Civilization might be my favorite version in terms of rules plus components. Uh, they've th- there are some substantive advantages. One of the niggling issues of basic civilization is its over reliance on the AST. That's the only uh, salient victory condition. I think advanced civilization overcomplicated it to no good effect. But mega civilization is now the the, the victory conditions are now really really tight. I think. And the components are very, very nice. There have been component issues dogging all the previous editions of Civ in various ways. It is a table monster. It will devour everything because there are an insane quantity of civilization advancements now. A total of 51 spread across various categories. We had to have an entirely separate table. Uh, to 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 keep them all, and even then we ran out of space. So it was it was it was, it was a whole deal. Uh, but everybody was engaged the entire time. It was never a question of it's your turn. Where did they go? They went off somewhere. They they're having a side conversation everywhere. Everyone was engaged the entire time. The trading phase was chaotic but manageable. We were able to use simultaneous play wherever possible. It really gave me a vision of how it could still be playable even with more players. I'm not saying I'm going to rush out to get a full complement of 18 uh, any old day. Uh, but I got to say, for a nine-player game, it was shockingly playable and fast-moving. What did you think, Walker? I think it was great. And the great thing about Civ is that it slowly builds. So, Well, that being said, it you, you play out quick. But for, <laughs> for a bunch of people just learning the game... You get through like about four or five turns very quickly, and you get to learn about how it's going to work and what's what you're in, what you're in, what's going to be coming up for you in the future. That's exactly what I want out of a longer game. Again, for context, we played for only about four hours, actually, a little bit over four hours after the rules explanation, because. All versions of Civ have actually been very, very good at offering you shorter versions because civilization in its various forms tends to have a very, very good ebb and flow and a sense of pacing and a sense of tempo and, 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 and a very sense of development. That's one of the things I'm looking for for a longer game. If I'm going to be playing a game for, for four hours or more, I want turn 15 to feel different from turn one. I want there to be a sense of development. And and civilization gives you such an excellent sense of scope. You start off with a single token on the board representing a single tribe. And by the end of it, you're managing an empire of cities with trade considerations and economic uh, considerations, all these texts that you need to manage and so forth. And cities get destroyed because of calamities. And you look at somebody and say, there's no way that they'll ever recover. But then they do because civilization, although it can be punishing, still lets people get back in. It's a wonderful design. And I really do think that that that, that Tresham's genius still shines through. Although I will say one thing that's very, very strange. This was actually pointed out by Chris Farrell, and I think it's an an excellent point. In the designer notes, uh, Flo DeHaan and John Rodriguez are the two people that have really redeveloped Advanced Civ into Mega Civilization. But they talk about in the designer notes how they're huge fans of Francis Tresham's original design and his original vision. And that's true, 
ish, because really what I think they're talking about is advanced civilization. Because again, mechanically, Megasiv is closer to advanced civ than it is to base civ. And yet in the rulebook for Megasiv and in the supporting documents, there's no mention of the people who did advanced civ. None whatsoever, because Tresham wasn't involved. It was a development team led by Bruce Harper and a, num- a number of other people. Uh, Jennifer Slickburn d- was involved as well, and um, you can find her on Board Game Geek on the reg. She's been a very good resource for a lot of players. And they're just not mentioned. They've been cut out of the history. They've been excised from the narrative, which I find very dubious and unfortunate. It's possible that it's related to some lingering intellectual property disputes. I'm in favor of giving credit where credit is due. And especially in a project like this, which is so clearly a redevelopment of other people's work, it's a shame that they're not credited. All of that having been said, if you are a fan of civilization and you have an opportunity to try Mega Civilization, I encourage you to do so. If you've never tried the Tresham original or even Advanced Civ, if that's all you've got access to, I encourage you to do so because after years and years of Sid Meier and, uh, and that mold, uh, I think you might find that Civilization is a breath of fresh air and it's aged really, really well. Anyway, I'm glad I tracked down my copy of Mega Civ. I'm glad people enjoyed it. We're probably going to play again before too, too long. And it, I think it was a great success. I agree. On the line of 2018 games, I played a game called Welcome To. It's one of these sort of roll and write type games, except this is a draw and write. Now, I've never said that I played a solo game before, and this is the first time I've ever played a solo game. There were other people at the table playing the same (laughs) solo game that I was, using the same components that I was, but... Yes. Welcome to is definitely a solo game. You're creating this little neighborhood. You're drawing like three cards, three or four cards a turn, and you're choosing one of them, and you're marking it off on your little piece of paper, and you're, you know, picking pools and fences and trying to just maximize your score. I found it very interesting, and I, I definitely played it again, but it wasn't it wasn't anything, you know, to write home about. Oh, boy. So you, you didn't really like the multiplayer solitaire vibe? No, not at all. No, it's too bad. At what point... After drawing up this neighborhood, do you start selling them beer and pizza? Fortunately, never. That sounds like an oversight. I know. You can really, I, I, I really think, you know, the forcing the commercialism, forcing the alcoholism and the obesity into a game like that is definitely what you need to do. Couldn't agree more. Once again, into the 2018, I also played Reef. It's another neat little puzzle game where you're flipping over cards and you're adding algae and coral to this little board trying once again trying to maximize your score but at least you know you're taking cards from other people you can see what they're trying to get and you can take cards before they get them and so there's a little bit more player interaction and I found it pretty interesting as well because it's three-dimensional as well you're stacking this coral up and I found it a very interesting game I imagine 10 years it'll be a science fiction theme with all the reef being uh, the coral reefs being gone yeah you are you're on quite a natural world kick because in in short succession you played Arboretum, Petrichor, and then Reef. That's right. I was it, I've been all natural this week, and I guess you could include Cryptid if you really really wanted to, but that I think would be pushing it a little bit. <laughs> I pulled out a game with Huey and Dewey. We played uh, Manera because of how the game was going. I thought of a new variant that we could play. We could play with a traitor variant where <laughs> you hand out you hand out hidden rolls and someone's the traitor and if they if they knock over part of the temple or they make a mistake then everyone else wins because it seemed as though Huey was definitely out to make the game harder than it needed to be. Really? Yes. Hmm. Can we talk about Dewey for a second? Because all uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie were all playing Megasiv, and they all they all took to it well. Here's the thing about Dewey: I've never, ever, and I told him this the other day. I've never seen anyone pick up rules the way he does. 
he actually showed up late to our game of Mega Civ, and I thought it was going to be okay because he'd played Basic Civ before. But he hit the ground running, and he just took to it immediately. Uh, great stuff. It was all good. I also played Diamonds. I played it once before. Another great trick-taking game where usually in uh, trick-taking games, if you don't have Trump, then you have to play off-suit and you usually are just throwing away cards. But in Diamonds, you actually get a benefit when you do that. And it's a neat, you know, storing, you know, diamonds in front of your board, in front of your card, and then taking actions to get them, you know, locked away behind so you can't lose them and stealing diamonds from other people. It's a fantastic trick-taking game. And if you enjoy that type of thing, I would definitely suggest it for anyone who loves trick-taking games. Do you bid? Is it one of the bidding trick-taking games? or No. Okay. Definitely not. I'd just like to apologize for not holding up my end of the bargain this week for a variety of reasons. I haven't had much gaming time for reasons that you probably uh, don't care about and don't really need to know about. But I was responsible for acquiring, sorting, learning, teaching, and then setting up and playing Megasiv. So that'll be my excuse. Sure. With that in mind, let us head off into the 2018 year in review. Now, while doing the research for this, I was actually looking over our 2017 year in review, and one of the things that I said for the 2017 year in review, that it really was an embarrassment of riches for that year, I had no difficulty getting a top 10, and I felt that any one of my top five, really, could have been a game of the year in previous years, and no shade on any of the games in in, in this list, but my sincere perception is that 2018 was not as good of a year. I've got a top 10, and we've got our game of the year, and these are fine, fine, fine games. But I really, you know, looking back over 2017, our game of the year was Gloomhaven, which I think in many ways was an, was an epic-making instantiation of a genre. And then there was Spirit Island, there was Citadel Confluence, there was not one but two excellent, excellent MOBA games, Guards of Atlantis, which is getting a sequel sometime soon, and Roman Bone Second Tide. It was just, it was a great, great year, and I don't think that uh, 2018 measures up. I agree with you on that, but if you look at it a different way, I think it was a great year for gateway or beginner games because we have games like Everdale and Reef and Cryptid and Crusaders and these really light, semi-fulfilling games that will bring more people into you know our hobby. I thought it was a great year for those lighter games. I don't know, man. Two, well, two, two of the games on my top ten... I would classify as gateway or intro games. I don't really think that it's a question of one or the other. I think a truly stellar intro or gateway game can be an excellent design. I just don't think that the quality has been there. I mean, we talked about Crusaders. I didn't think there was much there. I haven't played Reef or Cryptid. I mean, honestly, I, I just because a game is a gateway game doesn't mean it can't be profound and have really, really good strategic choices. But you and I both agree. Look, we don't agree 100% on Crusaders, but we both agree that the quality decision-making is not what you would call super high. No. And that, that's what I'm talking about. I, I, don't, I don't see the same depth of field as compared to, compared to last year. True. I should have listened to last year's show, but as we all know, I don't listen to the show. You've never listened to any show. But, Why would you start um, now? I, I would guess that I owned at least 50% if not more of the games that were on that list. And I just quickly went over this list now, and I actually only own two of the games on my top ten list. Yes, but we've established you don't like your collection. And that being also being said, I went through the top 200 games on Board Game Geek. In the top 200, though, there's only two games from 2018. Huh. And that well, is, well, I'll just say it, there's, uh, Rising Sun is one and Root is the other. Well, with all that said, let us begin the year in review. What do you got at number 10, Walker? 
And number 10, I have the game we just talked about, Crusaders. I thought for the time it, t- it took, the easy way to teach, the components, the fact that it is very welcoming and uh, is fun and quick to play. I really enjoyed Crusaders, the fact that it's going to be different every time. Easy to set up. I really enjoyed Crusaders, and I think I might keep it for a little bit while longer, and I would easily play it any time. So that's Crusaders They Will Be Done by Seth Jaffe. And my number 10 is a game that you just talked about, Menara, by Oliver Richtberg. I have yet to encounter a co-op dexterity game that I don't enjoy, and Menara is delightful. It has a tiny little bit of strategic consideration in terms of what kind of car, what card stack you want to pull from, and perhaps even it'll have a little bit more when and if we try the Walker Trader variant. It's, it's a delightful little game, and one of the things that I enjoy about Manara very much is, and I, I can't exactly put my finger on why, it always seems to draw a crowd. People gather around just watching people make these moves, giving unhelpful or helpful advice, case depending, and it just has a sense of drama that, that pulls people to it. So I think Manara is a delightful little design. I love the fact that it's co-op, because now the, the stress is being held by the whole group as opposed to, you know throwing the one piece on and then just standing back and say, well, it's out of my hands now. Exactly. Type thing. So that's the part I like about it, for sure. On to number nine. Number nine, I have Yellow and Yancey. It is an offshoot of, from Reiner Knizia. It's very much like Tigris and Euphrates. I thought they did a very good job. It's a, a, a different take. I think it's different enough that I'll play it just as much as I'd play uh, Tigris and Euphrates. I'll have a little bit more to say later. All right. My number nine is Shards of Infinity by Gary Arant and Justin Gary of Stoneblade Entertainment. It is a more or less uh, shameless ripoff of any of the Realms games, Star Realms or Hero Realms or even Realms of Cthulhu or whatever, what have you. And again, uh, just in terms of people not giving credit where credit is due, I read an incredibly self-congratulatory designer diary that they wrote about Shards of Infinity where they do not mention any of the other games that inspired them uh, at all and talk about how they brilliantly solved all these serious problems that had already been solved by other designs. And anyway, it was, it, was, it was a little obnoxious, and it made me like the game a little bit less. At any rate, I still enjoy Shards of Infinity. I'm looking forward to the expansion. Multiplayer is not the best, and uh, that's one of the things that I'm hoping that the expansion helps to address. But in terms of the incredibly bone-simple deck builders, it's probably now my favorite of the here's a display of five cards, generate money in combat, go buy something, and you're off to the races. All right, my next game is a fantastic two-player game in the same genre as Duke or Neoshima Hex or Oritama. This one is called War Chest. It's by AEG, and it's a great little poker chip game where all the different chips have different abilities and has a a drafting mechanism and bag drawing and has all parts, easy to learn, quick to set up, and I'm looking forward to future plays. That is War Chest. Okay, I've got number eight, and this is a very, very personal choice because I recognize that my enthusiasm for it probably exceeds its actual merits, and that is Thunderstone Quest uh, by Mike Elliott, Brian Reese, and Mark Wooten, also by AEG. It is, in many ways, the opposite of Shards of Infinity. It's one of your older, a little bit more cumbersome, a little bit over long deck builders, but I still really like it. I think they've done a pretty good job of taking the best elements from several different iterations of Thunderstone in the past and making a really good package. And the card variety is just stunning. The different the, the different scenarios play very, very differently from each other, which leads to a great sense of variety. Uh, there's going to be a co-op version coming out soon. I'm looking forward to trying that. And we've talked about Thunderstone Quest in the past. I'm still very enthusiastic. That's Thunderstone Quest. 
All right, my next game goes in the, in the same vein as Gateway, Nice Light Basic. It's by a designer that not many people have heard about. Mark and I hardly ever talked to him about, about him as Reiner Knizia. Sorry, a, say that again? Reiner Knizia. Sounds, like, sounds yeah, funny. I know. It's probably fake news, probably. Um, it's a game called Blue Lagoon. It's a fantastic game with uh, two distinct phases. The first phase, you're like spreading out, putting down villages, which you're going to spread out from in phase two. You're collecting all these resources. You're making these different paths across the land, sort of like a little bit like area control. I don't want to say area control because I'm sure I'll get flack on it, but I love everything about the game and the fact that it plays quick and is easy to teach. I'll have more to say on Blue Lagoon later, maybe in a couple numbers or so. My number seven is something that I imagine is also on your list, and that is Gugong by Andrea Stedding. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and we've played it a couple times since then, and it is still held up. I think that one of the reasons why, of the recent Euros, it really cracks into my top ten is because it is a little bit cleaner, a little bit tighter, a little bit more focused than a lot of the other sprawling, track-laden uh, stuff that, that are other designs there, which often just increase complexity without actually increasing the quality of the decision space. The trade-offs in Gugong are very, very real and very good in terms of your card management. It's got this novel action selection mechanism. Anyway, we stand by everything we said, and uh, I have no problem putting uh, Gugong up at number seven in my top ten for the year. My number six is Seal Team Flicks. It is a fantastic dexterity game. You are a SEAL team infiltrating either like a subway or an airport. You're sniping guys off, doing the long-range bank shot, throwing in grenades, flashbangs, single shots, heavy. It's all-around fantastic game. You get to gear up your guys how you want, take the guys in that you need, you know, set up ambushes, everything about it I love. Couldn't agree with you more. My number six is Too Many Bones Undertow. Now, I had a bit of personal decision about whether I wanted to include a standalone expansion as, as being eligible for the top ten, but I figure, yeah, whatever, it fits. So, <laughs> Too Many Bones Undertow is a standalone expansion to the Too Many Bones system. It actually has a, a pretty good quality of encounter writing, and that's one of the reasons why I think it deserves to, to stand by itself, because the improvements to the, the core encounter system are pretty good overall. It doesn't have the character variety that the other set has. It only has two characters in the box as opposed to the four characters in the in the base set. But really, if you like Too Many Bones, you're probably going to end up chasing down all the extra characters anyway. When it comes to games like this, I really recommend you keep the pace moving. So when it comes to Too Many Bones, I think three is the absolute tops. And even then, recognize that you're going to be in there for a long time. Uh, but what it lacks in brevity, it makes up for in uh, novelty and variety. So I really do recommend Too Many Bones, even in whatever form it takes. And the new set is a worthy entrance in the series and so my number six is too many bones undertow by for chip sure. theory games yep for sure if there's two genres it would be like the campaign adventure system or or sit down and play one night i think undertow is by far or the whole too many bones series is definitely what you want to try out for just to sit down play through an adventure and be done as opposed to like a descent or a gloomhaven where you're sitting down for multiple sessions my number five is Street Masters. Street Masters is a fantastic card game with also miniatures on a map. It has a, a great uh, system where when you draw the enemy, it goes in front of you. So you're the one that's, you know, it, so it splits up all the record keeping is what it does. So, you know, it's not 
like a Sentinels of the Multiverse where everyone gets their turn and then there's this giant enemy turn where, you know, everyone's sitting around waiting. It's like they sort of like piecemeals it out so you're not, you know, have this big buildup and it, and it works out really well and keeps the flow going and has tons of different characters to play, lots of different maps, great combos, much like Sentinels of the Multiverse where every deck has its own feel and makes you feel as though, you know, there's a reason to take one deck over the other and makes you feel as though you're doing something much different than all the other characters. And that is Street Masters. Here we're getting to the hardcore crossover because my number five is Yellow and Yangtze, again by uh, fresh-faced newcomer Reiner Knizia. We talked a lot about Yellow and Yangtze versus Tigris and Euphrates, and it really is the case as we've played both of them again. You're absolutely right. They feel very, very different. It's kind of like the the, the change. It's a little bit reminiscent of the change from you know civilization to advanced civilization. Small differences can make a huge impact on playing field. Now, some of them are obvious, of course, because Yellow and Yangtze is a hex grid rather than a square grid. But overall, just the attitude towards point scoring is sufficiently different that I'm glad that I have both of them in my collection. Yellow and Yangtze is probably a little bit friendlier, all told. It has a little bit less of that aspect of, well, I made a serious misplay five turns ago, and now I'm going to get punched in the face real hard. But whether that's a, a benefit or a detriment is up to you. But I'm glad that Reiner Knizia is putting out good new designs, as well as revisiting old concepts and redeveloping them. So Yellow and Yangtze is definitely uh, a worthy entrant, coming in at number five. My number four is Gugong. Mark's already talked about it. I'll just put in a little two cents, and it's just the card system alone. You know, trying to build your cards for next turn, trying to get cards in your discard pile so you're going to get more workers, picking, you know, the right action at the right time. And that's just one aspect of this game. The component quality is over the top, and I enjoy every time I play Gugong. My number four is Street Masters. As Walker just talked about, it is indeed very, very similar to Sentinels of the Multiverse, but in a way it is it offloads the player information load a lot better by virtue of the fact that you know you're spreading out control of the minions it minimizes downtime in that sense although downtime can still be an issue there's going to be uh more expansion content coming in the new year at some point sometime after chinese new year no doubt i'm very much looking forward to that i think street masters was an excellent inaugural design from blacklist games the outfit of adam and brady sadler looking forward to their future work that was street masters my number three is Rising Sun by Eric Lang and Simon Games. I like Rising Sun just due to the player interaction. It's constant. It's every turn. It's expected. There's no getting around it. There's no turtling. Wait a second. <laughs> there is turtles. Anyway, terrible, oh, that pun terrible, is so terrible. Bad. Anyway, does not. It did not get the legs that I thought it would. It, it definitely petered out and disappeared after it came out. But I really think that it deserves a relook. It does. It is sort of all over the place, but I really think it is a solid design. And that is Rising Sun. I'll be mentioning Rising Sun later, but not in a good category. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. My number three is Blue Lagoon. As I said at the outset, just because a game can be played with newcomers doesn't mean it isn't going to... It can't have lots of really high-quality decision-making and lots of even in-your-face player interaction. Blue Lagoon has been compared a lot 
to through the desert. And I don't think that's entirely fair because I think it really deserves to stand on its own as an excellent tiling game in its own right. This two-phase structure that Walker alluded to, where you have to set yourself up for the second phase while at the same time maximizing your points for the first phase, is really, really quite excellent and rewards forward planning in a way that doesn't really punish you. So it's accessible while still confrontational. It's a lovely design from Blue Orange Games. There were several designs from American City that came just short of the top 10. I could have talked about Lost City's Rivals. I could have talked about other things that were new to me this year, although not published in 2018. I really think that, that the, the, the Doctor has returned to form, and Blue Lagoon by Rainer Knizia is definitely some of his best work in a very long time, and I'm, and, and I'm a big, big fan of The Return of the Doctor. My number two is Lords of Hellas, a huge, just like Rising Sun, Another plastic, heavy, sprawling game, but, you know, cybernetic Greeks, who, what, how can you go wrong? That being said, it's got a fantastic god system where you're, you know, you're praying to the gods, you're getting special abilities, you're building these giant monuments, you're fighting these monsters, and you're, you know, you're mapping out their hit zones and getting, you know, special benefits depending on how you wound them or completing quests. There's all these different things. It's like a whole adventure. It's much like the feel of... Uh, of Rune Wars, where, you know, you have your adventure going out, you're doing all sorts of different things. Overall, I love it. I'm looking forward to all these expansions that that are coming soon, and it's, I think, I'm hoping that it will, uh, it'll keep its legs, and that is Lords of Hellas. Lords of Hellas is also my number two. I couldn't agree more. There's lots of stuff to do, but at the same time, the game never really goes off the rails. It is not going to last in excess of two hours. You always are in a position where you have to keep your eye open towards the victory condition. There are a variety of different ways to win, and you have to be conscious about how you're going to be building towards that because you're not going to stumble into victory. You're not gonna, you're not just going to do your own thing and look at it and say, oh, I'm just a step away from winning this way. I guess I'll do that. You have to be conscious about it. You have to take the, uh, the game under control, and I really like it when games have victory conditions of that sort. It, it, it's vaguely reminiscent, naturally, of the feel I get from playing Antica. And Antica you you know during the early part of the game you can just go and get the low hanging fruit but eventually you have to look and say where are my last points coming from how am I going to bring this to a close and Lords of Hell sometimes feels like that they're very different games but as far as elaborated dudes on a map game systems go I think Lords Lords of Hellas is among the very best of the past five years and I too am very much looking forward to the expansions so Walker what is your so we're going to have our collect just just to explain we're going to have our collective game of the year. This is something that we had to agree on, but our own personal top 10s, we just didn't have any collaboration on. So Walker, what is your personal top game of last year? My personal top game from last year is Teotihuacan City of the Gods. Really? Really. Okay. It's just it's it's in my wheelhouse. It's the it's a game where there's only 3 turns and you can almost plan out your entire game. You're setting these dice out. Wow, sounds great. I, I just really enjoy that kind of thing where you can say, you know, next turn I need that die there. I have this dice here in two turns. I can move it around. I can I can join it with another die so I don't have to, like, because they, sorry, I should explain. You're upgrading, <laughs> you're, you're upgrading your dice, right? And sometimes you're forced to upgrade your dice, but you can, you can, when your dice hits a six, it gets uh, ascended, but you can throw a five in a particular area and you just keep bringing around other dice into that same spot and ascending and and clicking them up instead and and getting a, a really powerful action by having more dice on that particular square and you're building this giant pyramid and steps on it and it's just an all-around very interesting game there's also technologies that you do that increase your actions and 
and lots of little bits. And I love the color palette and the way the whole game spreads across the table. And I, I just enjoy it. It's, it's a, I want to do a show where we talk about why normal worker placement games are garbage and dice worker placement games are just superior in every way. (laughs) And, And this just proves my point. Well, I would definitely agree with you that dice worker placement can make things better. Look, I, I've got nothing against Teotihuacan. I think it's it, it's, a, it's a fine game, but it didn't crack my top ten. I I actually, it's strange to hear you talk about it. Actually, I think you're underselling it. I think there's m- slightly more player interaction than you make it seem like. It's not one of those. I don't think it's one of those games where you can sit down and say, "This is everything. Every turn I'm going to do, planned out in advance." That doesn't sound. First of all, that doesn't sound very appealing. Sorry. It, it, that being said, you are right. There is things that are going to throw a wrench into your system, but you can like look at a goal and say, "In order to get this goal, this is what I need to do." Fair. Absolutely. My personal game of the year showed up on Walker's top ten at least. And it is the only game that matters. It is Seal Team Flicks. And I love it when games take what is sometimes viewed as simple or straightforward and show you what more you can do with the system. And in the context of Seal Team Flicks, that is precisely what Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas did with flicking games. In a way that Catacombs didn't, I think. Catacombs was kind of cute, but it was in, in some ways it was like a proof of concept or an early prototype for something a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more developed. And that is exactly what I, I feel that Seal Team Flicks is. Not only is it the case that it's one of my favorite dexterity games, certainly of the past few years, but it is also probably the best game instantiation of stealth that I've seen ever on, in, a, in a tabletop context. And the way they've managed to marry those two together is just sheer genius. Now, when we reviewed it, we commented that there were some niggling rules issues, but to their credit, uh, the designers have been doing yeoman's work on Board Game Geek, and there have been there, there's there's been an aggressive campaign of clarification, and so now it's it's gotten to the point where it's an incredibly quick experience. We, we everything runs smoothly and wonderfully. All the different maps feel different. All the scenarios feel different. All the different tech uh, setups and all the different equipment specializations that you can have. It's a marvelous system. Apparently, they sold out their print runs sufficiently quickly that they've already been greenlit for an expansion that I'm very much looking forward to. More boards, especially, because some of the boards are just so much fun. Sneaking around corners and trying to avoid patrol routes and then suddenly, you know, taking the calculated risk knowing that there might be a possibility of getting ambushed by some patroller just walking out of the bathroom with a stupid look on their face. I, I have a I have a blast every time I play Seal Team Flicks after an initial uh, mild set of hurdles of, of, of grappling with the system. And I, I really have no qualms about saying that it is my personal game of the year. Nice. That brings us to our game of the year. This is a game that we both agree deserves to be heralded as the best of 2018. We had a little bit of a discussion, but at the end of the day, it became clear that there was only uh, one release of the past year that we thought was worthy of the honor, and that is Root. Root by Cold World and later games, because not only is it a fabulous game with beautiful components, not only is it well-designed and it's got a very, very tight rule set, but it also manages to do things that other designs have tried to do and failed to do with the same level of cleanliness and with the same level of efficiency and focus. Namely, heavily, heavily, heavily asymmetric counterinsurgency style gameplay and indeed a lot of people compare it to the coin games by gmt and i don't like the coin games by gmt in many ways i think that root is the game that they're trying to be and failing to be entirely and we've played it a bunch of times since we reviewed it uh, a few months ago and it new, new players have been taking to it like crazy all the factions feel very very different but in a very satisfying way 
I've heard other people complain that they don't like revisiting the same factions over and over, but that has not been my experience. I said at the time when we reviewed it that after playing the game, I simultaneously want to try the other factions that beat me, and I also want to retry the same faction again that I didn't do well as to, 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 to really see the, the, the nuances there. Root, I think, is an absolute winner. Walker, would you like to say something? No, that's okay. Keep Just keep going. I'll just sit here and... What I'd like to say is that we talk about Street Masters and Sentinels of the Multiverse a lot. The fact that they have tons of characters and they all play differently. We can say Root is like that, but it totally is not. Because not only do they do that feeling of every side's playing different, but every side has a totally different mechanic. At least in Sentinels and Street Masters, you're all going through the same phases and, and turn sequence. You don't even do that in Root. Every faction has its own turn sequence, and yet they all still balance out, play well together, and are totally different from each other, and it is a marvel that it all works. And again, just to reiterate something that we talked about last time we, we, we discussed Root, it is still the case that even though... I may not have internalized the entire separate sub-mechanisms that make your faction tick. I know how to mess with you. That, I really do think, is one of the, the, the marks of genius that, that Cold World brought to this. Everybody doesn't score points the same way, but you all fight the same way, and you all move roughly the same way. And as a result, you still get to have that excellent substantive player interaction that doesn't feel like you're, you're, you're getting mean, unfair surprises. You know how to get in everyone's face. And so everyone is involved in the same game, despite the fact that you're approaching it from such radically different rule sets. And that really, I think, is one of the, the elements of triumph in Root. Hey, not, not only do they play differently, but it's also very interesting. Unlike Vast, where it's like, oh, I'm the cave, and I get to turn over some things, which I guess maybe some people found interesting, but not so much. In this, you have the birds that have this really cool card mechanism. You have the cats that have to you know, make sure they get all their buildings out. You have the Vagabond that does all sorts of, you know, weapons forging and questing. And anyway, on and on, otters, lizard men, anything you want, it's in there. And Brute is a great game of 2018. It's adorable. It's cutthroat. It's Root. So that's our game of the year. Why don't we move on to some other categories, and why don't we start with a category that is perhaps a little less uh, praiseworthy. Let us talk about the our least favorite games of 2018. Or most forgettable. Or most forgettable. Walker decided to uh, mix it up and include the bland. I am reserving uh, my spots uh, just for the ones that I loathe the most. Why don't you talk about your designs first, Walker? Well, there's two that I loathe, and one that... Like I said, it's just forgettable. Anyway, loathe Discovery. We talked about Discovery, how terrible it was. Un, like it's it's sort of not forgettable. It's unforgivable, really. Especially <laughs> from a company like Fantasy Flight Games. Like I, I'm not sure what they were trying to go go with this particular game. Like I said, maybe they just wanted to. You know, they had this KeyForge thing coming out where they had this randomizer thing going on. They just sort of want to, you know, go off the sort of popularity of what was going on. I'm not sure. But uh, I think it was, you know, universally panned as a flop. Well, we talked about Dinosaur Island. Uh, a line from Dr. Ian Malcolm of Jurassic Park comes to mind. They were so concerned about whether or not they could, they didn't bother to think whether or not they should. And as a proof of concept, as a proof of com component randomization by algorithm, Discovery Lands Unknown is a triumph of distribution. However, for my money, it is the absolute worst game from 2018 that I played. It is, I agree with you, it's completely unforgivable. I did not experience any redeeming qualities in Discovery. Uh, and, oh, we were so happy when we finished with that train wreck. It was like a lift had been, a weight had been lifted off our shoulders. Oh, 
I'm having flashbacks. Oh, yeah. tell me about your next game, Walker. Oh, you want me to do all mine next Well, one? no, I, Discovery's on my list, too. All so. right, so the next one is Decrypto. We played Decrypto. Uh, why would you play it when you have code names? It just seems like an overly complicated, way too long code names game, and I uh, didn't enjoy it. And there wasn't many games I didn't like this year, but that was definitely one of them. Huh. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess Decrypto definitely isn't on my list, and I'd mostly forgotten about it. I agree with you. It's... Sometimes proximity to genius can be painful, and you know we both love Codenames so much, and it is very similar to Codenames. And I, I will grant you, certainly the certainly the way we played was was less enjoyable. But in its defense, it's we're not a hundred percent sure we were playing by the right rules, and we didn't start by playing by the right rules. So I'm 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 never fully comfortable blaming a designer under those contexts. But I can certainly respect the fact that you found it frustratingly uh, subpar. What's the what's the the third game you want to talk about here? Last one is the forgettable one, because it's not particularly a terrible game, but it was Founders of Gloomhaven. Nothing in particularly bad about it. It was just like, eh, it was something that happened. I played it a couple times. <laughs> I I definitely won't choose to play it again. But uh, if it's it's the only game being played, I you know I'll I'll struggle through it for sure. Walker's rating in Founders of Gloomhaven. That is a thing that happened. <laughs> exactly. I'm actually surprised that the other two on my list weren't on yours because we played them together. Well, I was going through it. I, I couldn't think of anything. Like I said, I, could, I, can't, I couldn't remember of anything super negative. Like, so I'm waiting. So let's see. I'll, I'll probably agree with you. Let's see. Okay. Uh, my third worst of 2018 was Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. Yes. After I read yeah, that was a, a, another train wreck for sure. Just a whole bunch of why... And how and what? You know, a mishmash of a whole bunch of other stuff that has been done better before in a whole bunch of other games that comes together with a truly noxious victory condition that really, really puts the obnoxious icing on top of the boring, drab, and tedious cake. And the obvious rip things out of, you know, World of Warcraft, you know, smothering over the top was just sort of one of these things that you sort of went, really? Yeah. No, I mean... To be fair, I didn't have high hopes for it. And I, as I said before, I, I've not really enjoyed anything by Scott Alms before. But Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea was just a very unpleasant experience. Number two on my list, the second worst game of 2018, was Who Goes There? Which... Maybe had, I just wanted to forget this game. Yeah. Well, how, I mean, I, how could I forget? It was three and a half hours of our life. So overlong, overdrawn out, very tedious and procedural. One of those games where... There are a whole bunch of different phases, and you're not really making any substantive decisions, but it's still taking a long time, and you're just going through the motions of endlessly trying to make sure that you're managing your fatigue levels so you can roll enough dice to take care of just feeding yourself. And, you know, look, sometimes harsh survival can be fun. We're we're both much bigger fans of things like Robinson Crusoe, for example. It can be done well, but both in Discovery and in Who Goes There, if you're spending most of your time just treading water, who cares? And the other problem with Who Goes There, which was absolutely unforgivable is the whole traitor element of infusing paranoia is kind of nonsense because at the end of the game the traitors and the loyal people score the same way anyway so there's no way to tell who the traitor is because they are doing the same stuff you are and again of the you know decrypto is so much worse than code names issue why would i spend three and a half hours playing this game when instead i could spend 45 minutes playing the resistance which is a brilliant design pretty components though what is unforgivable is the fact that I didn't read the rules before I purchased this game. And I would have instantly realized that it was a deck milling game, which we all know I love deck milling games. There is that. Guess what? You're going outside to mill this deck or staying inside to mill this deck. In your defense. Decisions are huge. In, in who goes there. In your defense, number one, it's a very, very beautifully produced game. 
And number two, you always make me read the rules anyway. So it's my fault for not having read the rules in advance. But the concept was very interesting. Yes. It's the fact that it was based on John Carpenter's The Thing. Someone was The Thing. And, you know, you had these cool little clickers. It's based on the novella that inspired The Thing, namely Who Goes There. Yeah, it was the little clickers and you pass them back and forth. Are you infected or not infected? So the whole concept, it seemed like it was going to be great, but in the end fell terribly painfully. Yep. And as I said before... My worst of 2018 is Discovery Lands Unknown. Why? Just just no. Yeah. Just no. Yeah, just no. All right. So our top expansions of the year. I'm going to let you go first because I only have one. That's fine. I actually thought that I would have more difficulty uh, filling this out. Uh, I suggested three, and you said that's many, far too many. We're just going to get one. And I, I agreed with you. But then as I was going through making my top ten, I just kept running across really, really solid expansions. One of them, though, is arguably a th- throwaway, and that's the expansion to Root, namely the Riverfolk. And the, the, the genius thing about the Riverfolk expansion isn't even so much that it's so different. It's just that there's room for yet more incredibly asymmetric factions in the root formula. And so, again, it's, it, Cole Whirl, we've said this before, is really a designer to watch. Everything he's put out has been so interesting. Even his designs that we're not such huge fans of have been, at the very least, fascinating games last year's. John Company, I think, was a uh, has some rough edges, but it's still very enjoyable. Root is an unqualified hit. Uh, his his future stuff looks very, very fascinating. Anyway, so Root the River Folk just shows that it's not just... You can't just have four radically asymmetric factions. You can have six radically asymmetric factions all playing the same game. So good on that. The number two expansion of 2018 is the Quartermaster General Prelude expansion. I've talked about this a bunch before. Walker still hasn't tried it. And it's so simple... It doesn't add to the playing time. I now introduce it to new games, and it really, really, really gives the opening tempo a shot in the arm, which really just doesn't seek to sap the tension of card play, but it tends to just increase the engagement of everyone at the table. Because, you know, sometimes people playing Quartermaster General say, oh, I just put an army here, and you're going to kill it next turn, and we go back and forth. And indeed, that's part of the game. But with Prelude, you get to have a little bit of a running start, and it, it helps those opening turns keep the engagement up that much more. So Quartermaster General Prelude, I think, is, is definitely a winner. And my favorite expansion of the year, and it's it's a shame that I haven't had a chance to, to talk about this more, because I'm a huge, huge fan of the system and of the game, that is Grimsling is the Northern Territory, and this was put out early this year by Stephen Gibson at Greenbrier Games, and Stephen Gibson, he designed the game, and he did the art, and the art is still absolutely stunning, and he also did the writing, and the quality of writing in the Northern Territory is much, much better than what was there in Grimslingers. I thought that the writing in Grimslingers was pretty good, which, by the standards of board games, is actually very good, and the Northern Territory is is yet another step up. I really do think that in terms of uh, value for money, it's one of the best deals going, both the Grimslinger's base game and the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory expanded and improved on every element of the Grimslinger's game, which was already a game with lots of different elements in it. And uh, I really do think the Northern Territory is a winner. I'm, I, I, I'm also very much looking forward to seeing what else Stephen Gibson has in the hopper. So my expansion of the year is Grimslinger's The Northern Territory. All right, for my expansions, uh, I wanted to do a caveat at the beginning. Of course, all these games that we talked about are just games that we got to play this year. There are hundreds of games that we never even got to see and or play. So if there's one that uh, we didn't talk about, let us know and we'll try to get a copy of it. That being said, with expansions, uh, apparently, for whatever reason, Canada, I was looking into it because we had just talked about the Kevin expansion, Seth. And when we haven't tried it yet, but apparently it's been out in the States for quite a while now. And just for whatever reason, we don't have it in Canada. I just looked on it. It was on Amazon. You can just get it next day. But 
Wait, we wait, wait, wait. We get Crusaders early. I'm just saying. We get Crusaders early by a week, and they get Seth in advance for like a month. That's not I, fair. I guess so. I, I, I don't know what the whole deal is, but anyway, I'm sure if we had played it, that would be in our, on our list. But that being said, the You're great, seriously sapping my patriotism here, you know. The great, just... the great Western Trail expansion is a fantastic expansion. I would never play Great Western Trail without it. It was the game was waning a little bit for me. The fact that, you know, it seemed like, you know, having the, a huge herd was the, you know, the number one strategy and it was just, you know, rotate back and forth, but this just adds another whole element to the game without adding a whole bunch of more time and adds a lot more decision space there and I won't play without it. And that is the Great Western Trail expansion. Would you like to segue directly then into Notable games of 2018 that we haven't talked about on the show. Do you want to do Hail Hydra? Do you want to say what? I wanted to play Hail Hydra. It sounded like a fantastic, you know, role hero. It sounded like a hilarious game that I really wish I had a chance to play this year. And hopefully, even coming up soon, someone will pick it up. Yeah, the structure is one that I might like. I'm just so sick and tired of the the Marvel universe. So there are a couple games that are probably uh, dominating a lot of other top 10 lists that we didn't talk about. One of them is uh, Brass. First of all, I wouldn't have included Brass because Brass Lancashire, anyway, uh, was first published a long time ago, and so I wouldn't count it as a uh, as a 2018 release. And on top of that, I don't really like Brass. I vastly prefer Age of Industry, and so even if I had considered Brass as a 2018 release, I wouldn't have included in my top 10 because I don't like it that much. I think it's a it's a clunky design for no real purpose. I haven't played Birmingham. Maybe Birmingham is, is the best thing ever. Uh, but generally speaking, including introducing beer into a game doesn't make me like it more. Uh, generally, the opposite is true. And Walker's, uh, to, to the best of my understanding, Walker, you're not a huge fan of Martin Wallace economic games anyhow. So I, I don't think it would have necessarily pleased you to a tremendous extent. One game that came out this year that I very much wanted to try in time to talk about it was Fall of Rome, the Roman pandemic version by Matt Leacock and Paolo Mori. Paolo Mori is one of our favorite designers here at Swag. We really like what he does, and I really liked what they did with the formula, and I really like pandemic variants, but uh, we haven't had a, a chance to try it yet. Uh, such is the way of things. We are but poor basement dollars, and we don't get the newest stuff right away. Another one on my list is House of Danger. It was like based off the old choose your own adventure type books and it got halfway decent buzz. So I really wanted to give it a try. Hopefully I'll be able to grab a copy soon. A couple of games are being held up in fulfillment. One of them is Warpgate by Artem Nichiporov of Wolf Designer. He designed Guards of Atlantis. I did a couple of uh, playtest versions with him on Tabletopia for Warpgate and I was very, very much looking forward to seeing the finished product. The lucky people at Essen have already had their copies since October, and I am told by him directly, no less, that we might have ours in February. So, yay! Yay. Another is Quartermaster General The Cold War, the three-player version of Quartermaster General, so you can now play Quartermaster General from three to six players, depending on the conflict you have. It, It changes up the formula rather considerably. Some people in Europe have their copies, lucky them. And apparently the North American copies are in customs in Florida. So soon, soon, soon. So those are the ones that got away uh, that we would uh, 2018 releases. We would have liked to have been able to talk about, but can't because we're either poor, lazy or stuck in a country that doesn't have proper distribution mechanisms. Or the fact that you want us to talk about it just means that it's probably a terrible game and we wouldn't talk about it anyway. Yeah, I, I do nothing but introduce you to bad games. It's it's a shame. All right. Next I have was... Wait, wait, wait. Who was it that taught Root to whom? Best Components for 2018. 
What have you got? First off, uh, a quick mention again to Grimslingers of the Northern Territory. Art is subjective, of course, but my taste is better than yours. And Stephen Gibson's game art, I think, is very unique and brilliantly executed. And his character designs are just so well-realized and, and so very well done. So quick quick mention of that. The two, uh, the two other games I'd like to talk about in terms of the best components, one of them is Forbidden Sky. Forbidden Sky is great because you get to build a circuit. And it's got these magnetized pieces and this lovely electronic rocket that lights up and make noises when you complete the circuit properly. And the goal of the game is to build the circuit. So it's, it's, it's a gimmick. It's a ploy. It's just a toy. But whatever. I love it. It's great. Uh, you know, the components aren't super good looking, but I don't care. You get to build a circuit. That's great. My favorite component of the year, though, is a game that I wanted to like very much and ended up just being kind of meh, and that is GKR Heavy Hitters by Cryptozoic and Matt Hyra. The, the mech miniatures for that game were so incredibly beautiful. Huge, well-detailed, lovely paint jobs on them. The art style was this charming sort of cartoon full of onomatopoeia kind of dystopian... Uh, bubblegum kind of marketing thing. Comic book. Comic book. It was well-realized and very well-executed. The mini the mini designs were by Weta Workshop, and they do uh, movie special effects. It was a super expensive game, but you could see where your money went. I absolutely love those pieces. And so for, for me, uh, the best components of the year were from GKR. My best components were Rising Sun. There was seven factions. Each faction had their own unique sculpts, and they had... Two different warrior sculpts and a damio sculpt and and a leader sculpt and then all of the different monsters and gods and your yin yang tokens and the turtle fortresses and flags and the whole deal. It looked great on the table and it, it's a fantastic game. I probably would have put Rising Sun up near the top were it not for the fact that when someone pointed out that the clans were just cobbled together bits of Adrian Smith art that there was no visual sort of continuity between the different sculpts of the different clans. It was just random pieces of art that Simon glumped together and said, these are clans now. It was the kind of thing that I couldn't unsee. And so I never really felt the, the different clan designs gelling together in a coherent way, and that's one of the reasons why. Although brilliantly executed. But, but they're different colors, Mark. They're, you're right, they're different colors. <laughs> they're indeed different colors. So that was Best Components. Next I have on the list is the best game that you didn't like. These are games... I actually like these two categories. So we've got Best Game You Didn't Like and Worst Game You Did Like. Yes. Because this is where we get to acknowledge that there's a difference between our level to... Our ability to critically appreciate something and our sheer enjoyment of something. And again, we, we talk about this all the time. You know, this is a design that I can't really defend, but I really enjoy playing it. Or vice versa. And so this is these are some of the categories that I really like. So what was the best game that you didn't like? For me, it was Forbidden Sky. It had fantastic, like you just talked about, the toy value, the fact that the rocket ship, you know, you know, launched at the end. You created an actual electrical circuit. I just found that that it it was even though it's a co it is a it's a co op game, but it's very much a solo game. There was I felt as though there was always the best choice or the obvious best choice. It's like okay, well, we need to do this, and this is the cards I have. Well, it's obvious this one is you know goes best here and if I have to choose a card it's going to go here and I should really protect that guy and it just seemed you know you're go it's much like pandemic no well pandemic well you're just going through the motions and seeing if you got the right uh 
you know, cards in the right order. I do agree with you that for, that I always feel like Forbidden Sky should be grabbing me on a level that it's not. I'm still going to give it a few more tries, though. For me, the, the best game that I didn't like this year was Keyforge by Richard Garfield and FFG. There's... <laughs> I, I can't even point to... I have difficulty pointing to why it is that it just fails to grab me at all. I love the conceit. I love hearing new deck names. I giggle like a seven-year-old every time I hear a new stupid deck name, and I absolutely love it. Uh, I even like some of the streamlined decisions. You know, the tension of picking which faction to, to do. That part is often very cute. But it's just the actual process of playing does not grab me at all. And I thought... For a while, I thought it was just because I was done with games of that ilk, but it's actually made me revisit Epic, and I've been having a good time with Epic. So I actually do like the sort of magic methadone in small, in very, very small doses, no pun intended. But Keyforge just does nothing for me. Worst game that you did like? The worst game that I did like was Vengeance by Gordon Calleja. One of the things you characterize as it was a great one-player game. Player interaction is close to nil, and indeed, the theme of the game would utterly collapse if there were more player interaction, because the theme of Vengeance, which is what makes me love it so much, is that this is a revenge movie where a gang wrongs you, and then you murder all of them. And there's no room for multiple protagonists in a, ga- in a game like that, so we're all off doing our thing. There is some enjoyment to be had of cheering on your friends, but then it doesn't feel as much like a competitive in- uh, uh, endeavor. Anyway. The combat system's too simple. Your ability to prepare for combat results, not really good enough. But it's so well done in terms of realizing the theme. The artwork is so well done and so consistently done. The the little bit of writing that's there is really well done. And uh, I actually saw a Let's Play of Vengeance. It was it was a full like hour and a half. It was beautifully well done. It was starring Nicolas Cage. It was called Mandy. It was great. And it was just... <laughs> and watching this movie, it's like, yeah, Vengeance is really good. And uh, so this is one of those games that gets by on theme and charm alone. Uh, it's You're not there for the mechanisms. And uh, so Vengeance for me is definitely the worst game that I love uh, from 2018. What about you, Walker? Mine is sort of in the same vein. It was a game we called... It was called Feudum. I'm not even going to go into the terribleness that was Feudum, but just the overall graphic design and the way it was laid out and the fact that you could get these monsters to join you and is yet another dice placement game, which, you know, I also, you know, I've said maybe once or twice that I enjoy and you're taking these air cars and boats around and I thought it was an overall enjoyable experience, but was really not a good game. Really? Your enthusiasm for the whimsy persists past the three and a half hours of... Yes. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of whimsy. I know. It was... And none of us ever even hired any of those monsters. No, but the fact that you could. Yeah, sure. That's legit. That's fair. That's fair. So on to our biggest disappointments of the year. These are, you know, cases of dashed expectations, either for good reasons or bad reasons. What do you have for your disappointments of the year, Walker? I just have one Western legend. I really wanted Mm. to enjoy Western legend. But in the end, it just petered out. I wanted it to be this, you know, grand, we're all like roaming around, big gunfights, do what you want. And it just seemed as though, you know, you're, you know, cycling the same action, whatever you happen to get going that particular game. Yeah, I've yet to have a good sandbox board game. And I I very much have that same sense of disappointment every time when... Because sandbox games sound so much fun, and it sounds like you have those, all this freedom and get to do all this variety of stuff. But as you say, usually it just peters out. Yeah, Zaya falls into the same category, right? Yes. Where you just you happen to get a particular couple of items, and you just end up cycling the same thing over and over again. My biggest disappointment of the year is Rising Sun, because I'm like you. I'm a big, big fan of. Uh, well, I thought I was a bigger fan of Eric Lang than I am. When we talked about Eric Lang as as a topic, I you know came to realize that. 
his actual pedigree, there's only a couple of games that I really think are, are uh, unambiguous winners. And Rising Sun is, I think, too obtuse for its own good. It doesn't really have legs. It builds itself as a negotiation game. It doesn't have negotiation in it. Talked about my enthusiasm for Senji, which is very much a negotiation game. I love military games with a strong diplomatic element, and I wanted Rising Sun to be that. And I think that I can be forgiven for wanting that because that's what it was sold to us as. And so the complete lack of, of negotiation of substance, yes, who you choose to be your partner is consequential, but it's not really negotiation consequential. It's just a question of reading the board and figuring out, you know, five steps from now, is this the right choice, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe only a couple coins will pass. Anyway, uh, we, we reviewed Rising Sun, and I talked about my sundry disappointments with them. Suffice to say that my enthusiasm for the game has only waned since then. I'm just left with with a, a very strong sense of disappointment about Rising Sun. Got another couple of dishonorable mentions in the uh, disappointment camp. One of them is Dungeon Alliance by Andrew Parks. I still... I, we still love Core Worlds. We still want to like Andrew Parks. Every time he comes up with a game, the game, there's usually a couple interesting things, and then sometimes the game fails to cohere. And that was definitely the case of, of Dungeon Alliance. You seemed almost angry at the uh, at, at some of the hand management non-decisions at Dungeon Alliance. Yes. Well, the fact that it was like, I think I said, I worded it best, it was a time capsule game. That 20 years ago, they put this game into a box, and then they pulled it out again and said, let's put this out now, because that's what it felt and looked like. Sure. My other dishonorable mention for disappointments is actually War Chest, which I was surprised to see it make it to your top ten, because for me, War Chest is a number of reasonably good ideas let down by a crippling luck of the draw problem in terms of, did I draw the disc I need for this turn? Oh, oh well coupled with a just grindingly attritional endgame where it's just a question of eking out these minor moves because everything else is dead. It just... Warchester didn't do it for me. Unfortunate. Yeah. But I, and I wanted to like it so much in part because we love bag builders and Warchester is nominally a bag builder, although it doesn't do much interesting with bag builders. And uh, those big, heavy chips... I don't know why. The, the big, heavy chips and too many bones do nothing for me, but the big, heavy chips in Warchest, ooh, delicious. Well, it's from AEG, and hopefully we'll see an expansion. Maybe that will clear up some issues. We'll see. I'm, I'd be shocked. My, my issues are about the fundamental flow of the game, not about the unit variety. The unit variety is cute. That's one of the things that's great about it. I, I do like how the different units work. It's just that end game is just so brutal and drawn out. Next category, and our last category, biggest pleasant surprise. Yeah, let's end on a positive note. That's right. Apparently we're a bunch of negative Nancys. That's right. Negative Normans. Pretentious... Know-it-alls. Pretentious Peters and pretentious Patsies. There you go. So mine is Shards of Infinity. I really thought it was just going to be another Hero Realms or Star Realms, you know, another quick deck builder. But they really did sort of change it around, and and they did a really good job, and every play is very pleasant. My biggest pleasant surprise was Doer the Lesser Houses by Jim Felly at Devious Weasel. I'm a big admirer of Jim's work. I just haven't really... None of his previous designs really sang uh, and really came together. It was always just more more interesting than fun. And uh, a lot of his games have some of those rough edges in terms of rules that make it a little bit harder to explain than you want it to. And so I was a little bit trepidatious about Door of the Lesser Houses because it's kind of like... Uh, it's it's a bit of a party game, really. It's like a it's like a backstabbing large player count game, but I've had tremendous success once we get past the rules hurdles of you know various states and you're disfavored or favored or or or, or scandalized or what have you. 
the people take to it immediately and the backstabbing begins. I talked actually uh, a couple weeks ago about, about Good Critters where, you know, I felt that you really had to inject a little bit of the malice into the game because otherwise things were just going along in a sort of procedural dull way. Not so with Dur the Lesser Houses. The knives come out, they stay out, it's very satisfying. It's one of those games of cruelty that really, really, really works. And it's a hard genre to do well. Lots of lots of genres try to improve on the sort of what what could be basically a take that version. But Door the Lesser Houses was a winner. I wasn't expecting to enjoy it nearly as much as I did. So uh, my biggest surprise of the year was Door the Lesser Door the Lesser Houses. Nice. I enjoy it very much as well. Like you said, but the rules, huge hurdle, and I'm wondering if it's too much for what it is. But we'll see. Hopefully, we'll get it out a lot more this year. So the last thing I want to talk about uh, here, actually, is first off, our uh, schedule for the next little while. This is going to be our last episode of 2018, which is to say we'll see you in the new year, which is not in uh, not very long from now. And the other thing we wanted to do is take a, a little bit of a look back. And this is, for, this is mostly indulgence for me. So a chance to take stock of what we've done, what we're proud of, what we're less proud of. And one of the things that we've had an opportunity to do over the course of the past uh, 13 months or so of doing this little endeavor is really refine the editorial policies that we had when we gave birth to the the podcast. And I think Walker and I have talked about this, and we both really agree that if we were to summarize our overall viewpoint on what we think drives our content and the way we produce our content is actually two words, and that's context matters. We think that context matters in the sense of a designer's past work, in terms of the publisher that puts out a game, in terms of the broader social or historical context of gaming, in terms of the broader social historical context of a game's theme. And some people don't appreciate it when we talk about those things, but that's very much what we find interesting. We're not interested in presenting you some worker placement game and saying, oh, it's fun, I had a good time. We don't think that tells you anything, and that's not what we're interested in saying. And so we're going to talk about the broader context. We're going to try to contextualize these things. We're going to try to put things in in, in a proper place. Speaking personally, I'm very proud of the work we've done. And specifically, just as as a corollary to this, I am specifically proud of the number of corrections we've issued. Both in the sense that we've taken the time to issue the corrections, but also in the sense that we've said things that were amenable to corrections in the first place. I mean, we say we, we, we want to identify relevant factual elements. We want to make sure that we're accurate. We want to make sure that we get the details right. And when we don't get the details right, we want to correct the record. The fact that we have a record that is amenable to that thing, I take tremendous pride in. And I hope you guys enjoy that, too. Uh, from the feedback we've gotten from you, our wonder- wonderful listeners, it's one of the reasons why we keep doing this. And it certainly seems like insofar as we try to inject this kind of perspective into the content we do, it does seem like that there is a, a receptive audience to this. Then again, maybe you've been fast forwarding this section, uh, rolling your eyes really hard. Uh, if so, well then, Godspeed. So the editorial standards that have gotten us this far, we're going to be uh, carrying through in the new year, and we're looking forward to another year uh, in 2019 of being so very wrong about so very many things. Agreed. Pretentiously. So that's going to do it for this year. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Best well, movie of 2018. Annihilation. Isle of Dogs. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. 
Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoeseiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.